Well, we're continuing to look at how Jesus can help us bounce back in life. And he really is the expert on bouncing back. Because as we looked at last week, you can bounce back from death. You can bounce back from anything. And last week we we handed out a, a bouncy ball with a verse attached. And it's a verse that's a prophetic Old Testament passage that it comes from a prophetic Old Testament passage that Jesus came to fulfill. So Isaiah 61, 3 says that he came to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God's intention is to turn the downturns in our lives into a point in time that marks the turn from ashes to beauty from mourning to joy and from heaviness to pain. He really does want the oh no's in your life to be a seed that grows up into something solid and a pattern of real righteousness. My default mode when I blow it is, and I realize I've blown it or someone else points it out to me, is to start justifying myself, start talking about why I did what I did. Most of us are pretty good at that. All of us actually. In fact, we deal with things that bring us grief. You know, Whether it's death or disease or the loss of financial security or marriage, the death of a dream. There's kind of a sliding scale of grief that we deal with. And sometimes we grieve because we've been disappointed um, or we've disappointed ourselves and, and we've really blown it in some way. And in this series, what we've been trying to do is look at six different words that Jesus used that outline how to, how to respond, how to bounce back in life. All these words start with the letters uh, the prefix re, which means to go back or to do again. So the first part of bouncing back, which we looked at last week, is we need someone to deal with our sin. That is the collective fall behind every individual fall. And Jesus, he dealt with this in his resurrection. And then the next thing, which is what we're going to focus on today, is repentance. Repentance is this. It's to go back and to admit the truth about us that God wants to change. The word itself, repent, actually... And most of us know it brings to mind strange-looking people carrying signs and sounding mad, but the word itself simply means to change your mind. Repentance is the point in time when you agree with God. And we, we do not bounce until we actually hit the bottom. Balls don't just bounce mid-fall. They bounce once they actually hit the ground. And so the bottom of our fall occurs whenever we admit the truth about ourselves. And honestly, God has been aware of it all along, quite possibly so of people in our lives. But we've either been refusing to deal with it or we've been totally in the dark about it. And so until you get to the point of addressing the truth specifically that God wants us to see, um, we just keep on falling. And even if we manage somewhat of a human-powered bounce back, God will just bring another fall our way. And so... This is key. Admitting the truth is ground zero of the, of the bounce. It's really the bottom. And so because of that, we don't want to delay it. Repenting isn't just this generic, you know, I'm really sorry. It's, it's a specific aha moment that actually gets us moving in another direction. It turns us around. And so what I want to do is I want to look at a passage that helps us to see what happens before, both before and after true repentance. And we find it in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written from Paul, one of the early church starters in the first century. He wrote it to a church that he, that he had begun. He had started this church. He was writing a letter back to them in, in 1 Corinthians. And 
Paul in in First Corinthians, he was it was a very direct and pointed letter. He was confronting a specific sin and some patterns that were a real problem, and so he rebuked very strongly. He rebuked the church. He called them out on some very direct sin, and and so we're going to look at what happened after they received that letter in Second Corinthians. Uh, after you know they'd received the first letter, they'd made some changes. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes back to that same church to say they've obviously repented. There was, there was real evidence of change. And so true, uh, true repentance is always accompanied by specific before and after events. So first off, before, you see this in your outline, before, before repentance there is sorrow. Sorrow, really, this idea from this passage comes from uh, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Paul, Paul writes, Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you. He's talking about his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians. But he goes on, he says, But only for a little while, yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And so repentance is always preceded by sorrow. That's why we have this notion of just saying, I'm sorry. But just because we feel bad doesn't mean we actually change or we necessarily make any changes. It really can code... It can go in two different directions that we find from this passage. And the source of, of pain was Paul's first letter to this church. He refers to that in, this, in these verses. It was pretty direct. It really stung. It kind of sounds like Paul had real concern about the pain that his letter caused them. And the reason for the concern is that they could have just gotten mad at Paul. And they could have missed the point altogether. They could have been mad about his delivery or the timing or the way he said it. And because of that, he was concerned that they it might just... This feedback or the rebuke would just go right over their head. But but now what he's saying is he's happy. He's relieved because the sorrow that they experienced caused by his letter, it did exactly what God intended. It, it was sorrow that led them to repentance. You see that in those verses. And so there's these two different directions that sorrow can take us. First off, there's this worldly direction or there's a godly. So there's worldly sorrow and and I want to just distinguish between these two of these different types of sorrow. First off, worldly sorrow. The focus of this kind of sorrow is really on the pain itself. Um, there's no point to it. All that really matters is that we find a way to make it go away. We're, we're sorry we got caught, not really sorry about what we did. We're disappointed that we've got to stop because someone's brought it to our attention. But we're really not deeply hurt or grieving over the sin itself and our involvement in it. And so, with this kind of sorrow, we just try to make it go away, however fast we can. We do this one of two ways, either by numbing the pain or by blaming the pain. We numb the pain by finding something in this world to make us feel better, whether that's um, some sort of a drug, alcohol, some sort of some sort of outlet to allow us outlet to allow us to escape the pain, or some people blame the pain. We do this by finding someone in this world to get mad at. If we can find anyone obvious, then we usually end up, you know, if we can't find anyone, then we, we typically direct our frustration and our, 
and our blame towards the one who's in charge, which is God. But both of these tactics focus our attention on our world and not us, which is why this, this is referred to as worldly sorrow. Paul, he describes this as just worldly sorrow. It's kind of like you're deciding that the check engine light in your car is the problem and not the engine itself. And so you just keep banging on the dashboard trying to make it go away rather than popping the hood and looking inside and seeing what the real problem is. We just keep banging on the dash, hoping that maybe one of those blows to the dash will just cause that, that light to turn off. And that's kind of how this looks. This worldly sorrow path, it, it brings death. The separation between us and God only grows. There's no real relief with worldly sorrow, so we find ourselves just stuck. And our only relief is from turning to God himself. You know, and all of that worldly sorrow, the result of it is just continued frustration, anger, bitterness, more destructive patterns. And so God, what he wants to do, though, he wants all of that pain, wants to use that to draw you closer to him instead of pushing him away. We tend to do that, though. We, we tend to push him away. We tend to push others away. And so instead of really bouncing back, we end up experiencing more and more pain. That's, that's the path of worldly sorrow. The other, the alternative, the direction God would want us to go in is something called godly sorrow. And the focus of godly sorrow is on what God wants to do through the pain. This is where we go searching for what God wants us to change. We actually take the time to pop the hood and we look inside. Or... Like when we go to the mechanic, sometimes it's really obvious what needs to change in us, like, you know, the oil cap was missing or we ran out of gas, a real obvious problem. But, you know, other times you pop the hood, you can't see anything, in, and so you need some input. This is why church life, this is why fellowship is so important. You know, we're all very, very complicated people. And, and the owner manual, got the Bible, has a lot to say. This is why being involved in a church is, is so crucial. And you may need to find someone you trust and ask for help in diagnosing the real problem. But just be careful. You don't want to just go to anyone. Go to someone who really knows the Bible and lives the Bible out. Someone you you can tell has lived it out over a period of time. It's making a difference. No one's perfect. So, you know, everybody, we all make mistakes. But go to people who have that pattern of, of living in line with what God says and what God values. And so you want to watch people's lives and find, you know, find out from someone, uh, you know, you actually can trust. Here's another question. How can you tell if the sorrow is worldly or if it's godly? Because the tears don't look any different. There's a couple things. One is watch. Are they mad? Or if this is yourself, am I mad? If so, then if I'm just mad, then I'm most likely still playing the blame game. I'm just pounding on the dash. That's a mark of worldly sorrow. The second thing is this. Listen to their word, words. What are they saying? Is it mostly about what others have done to them? If it is, again, that's, that's a mark of worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is marked by humility, not anger. And it's also marked by questions about ourselves and not others. Worldly sorrow ends with just this, like the scripture said, it ends in the crash of death. And we, there's just two examples that come to mind as I was looking at this. Peter, one of Christ's closest followers, one of the 12 disciples, and really part of the inner group that Jesus really invested most heavily in, Peter had, he had godly sorrow after he denied Christ. 
he denied knowing him when Christ was arrested and about to be crucified. Rather than being marked as one of his followers, he, he chose to um, to lie and to deny that he was close to Jesus and that he even knew him. And what the scripture expresses when you read after he recognizes what he'd done wrong, the scripture expresses this genuine, legitimate sorrow and remorse for Peter. He 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 was he had this godly sorrow. He was broken over what he'd done, which for him it resulted in humility. He humbled himself. He just he admitted, you know, he admitted you know the fact that he really fell short. And eventually he was restored. Christ restored him. He ended up being you know, key leader in the church. Judas, on the other hand, another guy that followed Christ very closely. He was one of the 12 disciples. He betrayed Jesus. And he was the one that handed Jesus over to the chief priests for 30 silver coins. And Judas had worldly sorrow when he betrayed Jesus. The scripture says that it was just so much, too much for him to bear. And so he crashed. There was the crash of death. He committed suicide. This is from Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and he hung himself. You see, Judas crashed. He didn't repent. He had worldly sorrow that led him to the crash of death. But godly sorrow bounces. It bounces back like this, like a Super Bowl with really no regret. That means we look back on the pain with gratitude. We're not angry at the pain. We look back at the pain with thankfulness and gratitude because the pain is what saved our life. If you're watching someone fall, the very last thing you want to do is cushion their fall. They won't bounce. If I were to wrap a a towel around this ball and, and try to drop it onto the floor, it the ball won't bounce. The towel will cushion the fall of that ball. And, you know, if the ball had nerve endings, it would probably feel better, but it wouldn't bounce. It's the same way with us. If your definition of love is to just take away someone's pain, then what you'll likely do is just get in the way of the bounce that God intends you know, we, we need to be genuinely caring and kind, but if we take away the pain that others experience, they're not going to bounce back. They're not going to grow. They're not going to change. They're going to continue to fall. And we don't want to, you know, just jump in and take part in that. The scripture here in this passage says, you became sorrowful as God intended. That's what Paul said to that church. There was sorrow just as God intended. He, We don't want to get in the way of his work. It's not always a bad thing to feel bad about something that you've said or done. Negative emotions, what we what we feel when we've blown it, those are what God has wired into us to point to a problem. This is the major way that God points to problems in our lives. He allows us to experience negative emotions and sorrow. So don't waste it. Don't waste the sorrow. It's there for a reason. God wants to grow some things in you. So that's that's what happens before true repentance. There is this godly sorrow. But then after the... After repentance, there should be this, fruit. After repentance, there ought to be fruit. Would it be enough for any of us if we got in a car accident and a fender bender, and if the person who hit us got out of their car, looked at the damage, and then just said, you know, sorry, and got back in their car to drive away? You know, 
we all know you can't just say sorry. Being sorry is not enough when it comes to repentance. John the Baptist briefly, he said this, he said this about repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Matthew 3.8. Repentance, as he was describing, is like this tree with roots that go deep down into our soul. The best way to identify real repentance is by the fruit that it actually produces. Just because someone says they're sorry doesn't mean that they can actually be trusted. What we want to do is wait to see if there is fruit in keeping with repentance. We want to look for the right actions. If you're the one that needs to repent, you need to do something, then you need to produce fruit. Don't Again, don't wait. Just get after it. Begin to obey. And <clears throat> Paul continues on in this passage. This is really how we do it. We find the the like a list of fruit that comes after repentance in 2 Corinthians 7 starts in uh, verse 11 says this to see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what alarm what longing what concern what readiness to see justice done so this verse it lists seven different fruit of repentance these are all actions that make up the bounce that God intends and so just going through these one by one, giving a little more about the, what the Greek, the original language says about these words. The first one is earnestness. He says, what earnestness? Literally, that word means speed. The idea here is that the problem, the issue, the sin, it's not backburnered. We take initiative. When we, when we actually get after it, you know, that, that is evidence that, that, that we've truly repented. So often we just, we blow it and then we set it aside and we, we shelf it for a while. And it's still a problem. It's still tempting us, still, um, you know, a major area of concern, but we don't treat it that way. And so, um, you know, again, that's not, that's not real legitimate repentance. A repentant person actually chooses to take it off the shelf and to do something with it, to make progress, taking, it, taking real initiative. The second thing that Paul lists in this verse is there's eagerness. What eagerness to clear yourselves. The word eagerness is, it really literally means to give an account of what you did. The idea here then is to come clean. To not hide behind our sin. To not hide behind pain or tears or anger. But to just give an account of what we did. The third thing is indignation. Paul says, what indignation. This is a disgust rather than a secret longing for it. So this is a choice to just cut it off. To recognize that this is dangerous. That this area that has trapped me in the past is not something I can toy with. It's something that I need to run the other direction. I need to cut it off. I need to not just um, limit my access. I need to, um, if at all possible, I need to remove access. And so... This is an area we need to really think through. We need probably to have a discussion about if we need someone to give us perspective on if we're really, if we've really cut it off. Sometimes we can't see the truth about ourselves, and so we need someone from the outside to come and just to take a look at our actions to see what we're doing and to really give us some honest, legitimate perspective on our life. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing that Paul lists as, as a list of fruit of real repentance is alarm. He says, what alarm? This word Phobos is where we get the word phobia, which is a, a real fear about the danger of something. The question here is, you know, do you walk up to the line of this wrong and then you just kind of hang out right there? If so, there's no real fear. 
And so what we need to do is we need to create a buffer. We need to make sure that we've given ourselves plenty of room so that we're not just put in extreme uh, temptation, tested, you know, because the truth is if we get very close to that line, we're going to walk right past it. And so, again, I'd encourage that we think through how to create um, this buffer. Probably needs some input from others, which is kind of connected to this fifth one. He says, what longing? Literally, this word means to dote on. When someone is doted on, they have attention poured or lavished on them. You cultivate this by asking someone, someone else, to hold you accountable for change that needs to happen. And accountability is something that really helps us make progress. And so, you know, if <clears throat> if you've been through that process of, of godly sorrow, you recognize the need for change, then it makes sense to include a few people in that process just to admit, here's what I've done, here's where I'm here's where I'm headed. This is the new direction I'm going in. Would you would you just, you know, keep an eye on me? Would you ask me a question here and there and check up on me? So that's the fifth thing he said. There was this real longing day. So the sixth thing he says is the concern was there. There was concern means to boil. The urgency doesn't go cold when the pressure is gone. And so you've made a plan. You've made a plan. You've thought through, how do I stay free from this long term? Because oftentimes we we see a little bit of progress, and then the urgency is no longer there, and then we we make, you know, we blow it again. And so what Paul's saying here is there's legitimate concern. There was this legitimate concern. They thought through how to change. Um, In in the case of the church, they'd, they'd actually planned out some changes. The seventh thing he addresses here is, Justice, he says, <clears throat> justice is the sense of you really want to make it right. And the key here is making amends. Making amends. The fruit of repentance just doesn't grow overnight. These these seven things, um, you know, this is where God wants us to focus our attention. The fruit of repentance, he's, you know, it's planted, then it's watered, then weeds need to be removed. But as you work on the fruit of repentance, God, he takes this fall and he turns it into something like a bounce. And if we'll allow God to work through the pain and the sorrow that our sins, our struggles, and all of our failings have produced, only then can we find healing and freedom from from this pain. There's a few things you might want to consider doing as the next step to today's message. The first one is this. It's, It's ask one person for input this week. And this I'd encourage, just to help me see the truth in my own life. Just asking someone, hey, you know, I'm working through this. I need some input. I need someone else to diagnose. It's like looking under the hood and not really be able to figure out what the problem is. So needing someone else with a little more experience, someone who's walked with God longer than you, to be able to help you understand what might be missing. The second one is to consider picking one of the fruit, one of these seven fruits of repentance to really cultivate this week. Just thinking through what that might need to be. Maybe it's accountability. Maybe it's really coming clean if that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's thinking through what is a buffer going to look like for, for, for me. The third next step is, is to invite a friend or family, someone who you think would benefit from being a part of, of hearing next week's message. And so we just want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us. And let's go to the Lord in prayer.